Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting Parsha podcast. We are deep into the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. And I am truly blessed to have, and so are all of you, to have my friend and colleague, Sefi Kraut, who, in addition to be a faculty member in the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators, she also happens to be the director of the Pardes Machloket Matters Project. Welcome, Sefi. Thank you, Tzvi. Glad to be here with you. Fantastic. Just want to remind everybody that we do this a few weeks in advance, and so therefore, as we're recording this, unfortunately in Israel, the hostages have not come home. There is still a war going on, and I imagine some of that mood or tone will be reflected in the Torah that we talk about. But we are both, I'm sure, hoping and praying that by the time you listen to this, the hostages will be returned, we will have peace, and things will be looking a whole lot better. Amen. So... Let's jump in. So we're in a parsha. Sefi, I think you're the first one to be blessed with a parsha that has very little narrative in it, right? We've had all these narrative parshiot, all these stories to tell and commentary on the stories, and yet you bravely jumped in to a parsha, which there is some narrative at the end, a covenant ceremony at the end, but it is primarily, as its name would suggest, mishpatim, it's about laws. And I'm wondering, as you looked at this Parsha, what stood out for you? Thanks, Svi. Yes, this is an interesting Parsha, or some might say a very boring Parsha. You know, if you are into narrative and character study, this is not going to be the Parsha that grabs you the most. But if you are interested in thinking about how societies ought to run, ought to look, what is the best, most appropriate way to think about obligations one to another, to think about the ways that society can function in a moral, ethical manner, then this parsha actually will likely be very exciting to you as it deals with social responsibility, as it deals with sanctity of time through the Chagim and Shabbat. So it is an action-packed parsha in a certain way. Well, Jewish law, you know, you're right. Some people say, oh, that's dry. But the truth is, I guess we would argue from a Torah perspective, it is the most direct way that God communicates values, expectations, as you said, the way we are meant to structure our relationships with one another in our society. So we can assume as we study these things that we are in a way surfacing the divine values and expectations that are meant to shape our existence with one another. Certainly. And if that's the case, and if that's the way we're going to look at some of these laws, we wind up with very fundamental questions about what are God's values? And I don't know if I can say this on this podcast, but do we agree with those values, right? There are laws in there related to slavery. Why is that the case? It begs all kinds of questions and it raises all kinds of interesting potential dilemmas and opportunities for us as we think about how to build a society. Yeah, I guess some people would say that's, the, in a way, the miracle of the Torah that we find any of it relevant, right? This ancient legal code applying to people thousands of years ago, and yet here we are in the 21st century, and we're still studying it, as you said, to sort of surface these values that we think are embedded in these legal requirements. Yes, and today I'd love to focus in on a particular verse that we might 
at first glance think is actually not so relevant in our lives today, but I think speaks very much to our time period. And that is one verse from chapter 22, verse 27. The Hebrew reads, Elohim lo tekalel amcha lo ta'or. And the translation is where it gets interesting. It's only seven words, but there are at least two words out of those seven that pose a potential challenge in translation. So let's stick with what we've got to start with. Do not curse Elohim, and the nasi among your people you shall not curse. And of course, you've noticed that I didn't translate the words Elohim and the word Nasi. And it's not so simple to figure out what those words refer to and what the relationship is between them. So the word Elohim, what does Elohim mean? I think most of us would interpret the word Elohim to mean God. And that is certainly the case in many, many instances throughout Tanakh, throughout the Bible. However, the word Elohim does not exclusively refer to God, and that's actually proven throughout our parsha. Before we ever get to chapter 22, verse 27, the verse that I quoted, there are actually a few times, uh, three times already in our parsha alone, where the word Elohim refers to judges, judges. And so really, if you take a step back and try to understand what is the translation of the word Elohim, El really refers to a power. It means a power or a force. And Rashi, in an earlier verse in Genesis, explains that all usages of their term Elohim in Tanakh indicate a position of authority. And so we can understand then, if Elohim references a position of authority or alludes to a position of authority, certainly sometimes that can mean God. But also, judges have a tremendous amount of authority, and therefore the word is an apt description for them as well. You know, I was thinking we have the famous B'nai Elohim, the children of Elohim. And I deliberately said Elohim because, of course, we're caught in that problem. If it means God, then the, traditionally we would normally substitute the hey for a kuf to not pronounce God's name. But uh, if it just means powerful people, judges, or in some instances, foreign gods, right? Mm -hmm. Or the Ten Commandments, Elohim Acherim, other gods. Right. And so that word, which we kind of throw in there all the time, because it's a common name for God, you're reminding us in the Tanakh itself, it's loaded with these potential other meanings. And even the way we iterate it, right? Do right. we say Elohim or Elohim? automatically sort of puts a certain interpretation on the table of what we think is being referenced there. Yes, definitely. And so if we were to read back into our pasuk, into our verse, the first half would then mean, do not curse judges. And that is actually the explanation that most commentators suggest for the word Elohim in this verse. Do not curse judges is the injunction. And then the second half, according to many commentators, the nasi, you should not curse the nasi as well. The nasi refers to the king. And so now to pull the verse together, the translation would read, do not curse the judge and do not curse the king of your people. And stepping back, why would we need a law written explicitly telling us not to curse these officials, these authority figures in our society. I'm just saying you're surprised that we need to be told not to <laughs> curse the powerful people in society. I'm thinking okay. I open up every news website and that pasu could just be the headline, but as opposed to a prohibition flipped over into a positive commandment. What we're going to do right now is curse the powerful authorities because we're so angry, we're so frustrated. So it's just funny to think that, you know, that we could 
at a certain point in our history, we have the question, why Why would people do that? Right. Well, it's funny because you are pointing to the 21st century behavior where that is just human nature in our century. And in fact, the commentator Rashbam, who lived in the 11th and 12th century from France, he actually points out that this was human nature in his time as well. <laughs> and he says one of the really nice things that I think is a nice methodology about Torah overall, a point that he makes on his commentary on this particular verse, the Rashbam says that the Torah relates to the norms of society. And then he goes on to explain that the norms of society is that when you have people who have authority, those who are subjugated to their authority typically curse them or get angry with them or mock them, deride them in some way. So the Rashbam living in his time and we living in our time seem to be in agreement on human nature and then raises this question, well, if that is human nature, still, why is there a need to say this? What is the purpose of letting us know that this is something we should try to avoid? There's really an important methodological point that you're raising. If the Torah has to prohibit it, it's because enough of us want to do it or will do it. And maybe that's a guiding theme throughout Mishpatim. If the Torah has to tell you to do something or not to do something, it's because, as you said, there is an instinct perhaps or a nature or something within us that pushes back against it. So, of course, we now have to figure out what is it about cursing, if that's what we want to use, expressing tremendous anger at the people with the most authority. Where does that come from and why is that so powerful within us, do you think? I think we're human beings who always aim and wish for freedom and autonomy. I think that's one piece of it. And, um, most of us do not like being told what to do. Uh, certainly, if we've been raised with the notion of democracy and freedom and liberty as a value, then having others tell us what to do pushes against our our most basic wishes. And on top of that, I think there is something interesting about this pasuk in that it focuses in on leaders, right? When we are not leading, that's when it is easiest to point to those who are and see all the things that they are doing wrong, all the flaws, all the ways that they are wronging us, or we perceive them to be wronging us. Of course, anyone who's ever led anything, a synagogue committee or uh, something at work, is very well familiar with critique, that people are often quick to critique, not necessarily as quick to try to problem solve. So you sort of opened up two pathways, and then you can take us through the other commentaries that you noted. One is sort of what you described as a natural human inclination for freedom and autonomy, right? This sense of, I want to be my own boss. It's unpleasant for me for somebody else to tell me what I can or cannot do. But then you raise a whole other pathway here, which is the sense that I'm okay with having leadership. I'm just not okay with the specific leadership I have. Because the first model is I'll curse any king. Because any king has the right to come into my house and take taxes, and that really annoys me. Any king will provoke that kind of response. Or any judge annoys me, because who says they get to determine where the boundary is between my land and my neighbor's land? But the second one is actually more subtle. I'm okay with authority structures. But it's these authority structures that are provoking my wrath. Right. And isn't that justified sometimes? Can't we imagine that there actually are leaders or authority figures who truly are 
harming me or harming society. I can't imagine any of our listeners either in Israel or America could relate to that idea that <laughs> leadership might be flawed. But perhaps there are listeners in other countries where people do have some complaints against their Right. Leaders. And who gets to determine if those complaints are quote unquote legitimate or not? Right. So what's the Torah telling us here? Is it telling us we can't complain? So this is where I'll tell you that I actually get a little bit stuck. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to share a comment made by a, a commentator named uh, the Nativ, 19th century Russian Empire and Poland, who really broadens the application of this pasuk, which I think will actually just strengthen your question in the sense of, what are we allowed to do? Are you saying that critique is not possible? Is that what the Torah is really aiming to say here? So I'm just going to read a brief excerpt from the Nitziv. His commentary on the Torah is known as Ha'emek Tavar. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but these are his words. The Nitziv says, on our pasuk, And here the Torah instructs regarding any person in a position of authority, lo tekalel, to not scorn and put them down. People have a tendency to try and bring down any leader who fails to satisfy their own interests, hence this law. But it should be understood that similarly, one is prohibited from deriding any Jew. The leader was singled out because people are more prone to this practice and because it breaks down the essence of society. So here, the Nativ is broadening this entire pasuk to say not only should we avoid deriding leaders, and it's not just about cursing, it's also about scorning leaders, and it's also not just the judge and the king, but any leader, and also not just any leader, any person. We should avoid throwing scorn on and deriding them. And so here I think the Nitziv is really broadening this out, right, and asking us to consider and be careful with the language that we use and the way we relate to other people and the critiques that we bring. So what is the Torah saying here? And the Nitziv's view seems quite limiting, I think, what we can say and should say and to whom we should direct that critique. Is that actually what the Torah is aiming for? I guess it all depends on the third word in that verse that we didn't deal with of lekalel to curse, which you've been using language of scorning or deriding. And the imprecision there, the deliberate one, I think, on behalf of the Torah is suggesting that there is some kind of line that begins with critique and ends with outright cursing or maligning, which I always imagine. I heard somebody on TV speaking about someone who did say something really not nice. And they said afterwards, you know, I wish this person raw. I wish only bad for this person. And I understood their anger. The person said something that was also offensive to me. But that to me is what, when I think of a curse, mm -hmm. I wish that person evil. I wish bad things would happen to that person. And the question is, as you, Sefi, look at that range, where would you draw the line between critique and curse? You can't see that in the studio here. I'm thinking, my eyes are looking upward, trying to consider Tzvi's question and just take it in. She's looking very thoughtful right, right now. It's <laughs> true. doing my best. I think one distinction that's worth making is critique of an issue or a stance that a person take or has taken versus 
a personal attack, in your example, a wishing that evil befall somebody. To my mind, that falls more along the lines of cursing someone, right? I wish something bad for you in the future, or I wish, and we've seen this, I think we see this in politics today, we see it in both the U.S. and in Israel, attacks on the families of leaders, and that is a personal attack which has nothing to do necessarily with the controversial or offensive statement that a person has said. And so the cursing piece to me, that's one distinction that arises for me is the wishes of bad on a particular person as opposed to limiting the conversation to the issues at hand. Another thing that occurred to me also is the critique in the world of like tochacha, of rebuke, is meant to bring improvement, right? Uh, you're going to show me where I am failing as a podcast host in order that the next time I record one, I'll do a better job. But if you like attacked me personally, which by the way, anyone knows Sefi, she would never do that or anything close to that. That's how you know you've gone over the line is when it's really about Anger and hurt feelings being expressed, I think, in ways that really wish harm or something negative to the person you're speaking about. Right. It's not so clean and clear cut, I would say. What if I said something terribly offensive? What if I was an important person, which I'm not? But let's say I was a supremely important person, you know, and my decisions impacted policy for an entire country or for a state, right? And my tactic is to go low to attack you, Tzvi, you know, the person from the other party. We're currently in U.S. Uh, presidential primaries season, right? How do you get attention? Maybe in order to achieve my end goal, right, I'm thinking, well, I got to attack this person. That's the way the game is played. And you can come along and say to me, rise above. But I think you're always going to have people who say, I would love to rise above. But that gives the other person an unfair advantage. It's not the game that we're playing. Yeah, that's the old, right? If they're going to play football, you can't play, you know, table tennis, right? In other right. words, if they're going to hit and hit hard, if you don't hit back, you're in trouble. But you could argue this is exactly what the Torah maybe is saying. You don't have that option. The ends don't justify the means. And you can't, at least from the Tzitz perspective, not only speak that way about other leaders, but about other people. But I still want to come back to the institutional question, right? Moving in a way away from the Nitziv a little bit, that there's something specific about the dangers of attacking the individuals or institutions that bring order to our society, like the political leadership, the judicial leadership. And I'm wondering, again, if we apply that same question, where does legitimate critique begin? And then where does it end up being destructive, that you can undermine people's faith in the systems that are meant to govern us, and you will simply leave chaos and anarchy in its wake. I wish that all of us who do critique institutions would be asking ourselves that very question. Is what I am going to say, will it destroy faith in an institution. I don't know what the exact rules are. We could try to come up with a blueprint for what should be said or could be said or shouldn't be said. But I think asking the question in and of itself is probably a, the first step. And it's not simple. I think there's perhaps another factor involved. You know, one might come along and say, 
you are suggesting that I can't undermine the faith in this institution, but I think it's my duty to highlight the ways in which this institution is failing. And I might say, as you were mentioning before, my purpose or my intention is to improve the institution, and there's no way for me to do that without highlighting all of its flaws. So what options does that leave us with? Well, so let's take that question into our current situation. You know, if we were discussing this on October 6th, we would be running into the conversation of the debate in this country over judicial reform, which obviously became something much bigger than a debate only about judicial reform. And as you said, that people felt that their very existence in some way was threatened in the language that was used. If you could turn back the clock right now, what would you want to say to everybody engaged in this debate, thinking about the Pasuk, the verse that you've been challenging us to think about? Do you feel like you heard cursing in the sense of the Kalel? Do you think people did go too far? Or as you looked at it, you feel like, nope, they were destroying and trying to save or saving and you know, whatever term you want to use. Where were you back then when all that was going on? I think it's the perfect and most horrible test case all at the same time. You know, it's the perfect test case because it is, I think, a prime example, yes, of this pasuk of Lotakalel showing up in all the worst forms. And what's horrible about it is what it did to our society, not only undermining faith in our institutions, but faith in one another. I think that became clear very quickly. Going back in time, trying to go back in time and thinking about it, I think one major flaw that contributed to the heat on all sides of this issues was the haste with which this legislation was attempted to be passed. There was a lack of conversation, a lack of discussion between all parties involved. And I don't think we began with cursing. If I remember correctly, it's hard to go back in time in my head and track the timeline, how we got to where we got to in this debate. But if memory serves, I don't think that's how it began. And there were people who really felt that some kind of judicial reform is necessary and there are issues to talk about here and to discuss. But the pedal to the metal of going from zero to 100 so quickly without conversation made everybody or many people far more suspicious of the goals. There was a lack of transparency, a lack of conversation. Had there been transparency, had there been conversation, I am not claiming that everything would have gone smoothly and easily or that there would have been agreement, but I do think that there would have been public debate and discourse about it. And because we didn't have that kind of conversation and because it was pushed through, created lots of suspicion on all sides, that quickly escalated to the takalel, right, to the suspicion or the accusation that those in charge, those Elohim, right, those people with the power are abusing that power to shove through something that will harm lots and lots of other people. And, you know, the flip side of others saying, hey, we voted in this particular government and now you're turning around and saying that the government in a democracy doesn't actually have the authority that you've claiming that wonderful democracies are meant to have. And we devolved. We devolved into a scenario of name calling, of cursing, I think, is really an apt description. Oh, yeah. I think that verb, unfortunately, works very well. And, you know, my take on what you're saying is that there's this dual level of responsibility 
which you've introduced, which I wouldn't have thought of reading the verse, that the leadership has to behave in ways that won't invite cursing, right? That they have to think about their effect, not just on the people that voted for them, but the effect on, in our case, the other 49%, right? Even in America also, elections are 52-48. You're talking about, as someone reminded me, you know, Donald Trump has tens of millions of people that think he's great. And as much as somebody can be like, I don't understand, I don't understand how anybody could like him, anybody could like him, they have to absorb the reality that I think, you know, 60, 70 million people voted for the guy. And I think the same thing happened in Israel, this forgetting that there's this huge number of people that also need to be thought of, and you have to be the leaders of all of them, or you will invite cursing. But then the flip side, of course, is when you're in that position where you're not happy with what's going on. How do you offer critique without tearing the whole thing down? And it's scary because there are those theories out there that outsiders looking at what happened to our society invited, in some way played a role in our enemies thinking that we were no longer a united society capable of defending ourselves. And if that's the case, then both sides, it seems to me, have a, a big cheshbar nefesh, have a big questions to ask themselves how to take steps that don't send that message and don't really tear up the very fabric of the society that we've built. Right. And of course, it's all the more important to do so, but all the more challenging taking those steps when the stakes are high. And when it came to judicial reform or judicial overhaul, depending on how you see it, the feeling in the country was the stakes are incredibly high. What is the character of this country going to be? And as the cursing got louder and louder, the stakes felt higher and higher, and in wartime as well, right? And what the stakes could not be higher than at the moment. And so the finger pointing and the deriding uh, only gets stronger, gets louder as it feels more urgent due to our feelings of vulnerability. The Rashbam said it in his own way, you know, in the 13th century, and we're going to feel it here now. And going back to your description of the parsha, is it relevant? Is it not relevant? I think this verse is really calling out and saying, take note, it's timeless. So what's your takeaway now looking forward and the lesson to be learned, so to speak, moving forward and how we should you know, speak to one another, disagree with one another, view our leadership, even when we find them very flawed. What's been your own personal takeaway here? I feel a lot of sadness. Um, I feel a lot of sadness about where we are and where we're heading as a nation here. I'm speaking specifically in Israel, in that the war in some ways has temporarily covered up our differences and our complaints with one another. Of course, there are cracks, and those cracks are already starting to show in significant ways. But the question of what happens the day after, which is a question that everyone raises, and I think most people, when they say what happens the day after, they mean after the military fighting is mostly done. What happens in Aza, what, etc. There's another side to that day after, which is how do we relate to one another? How do Israeli citizens relate to one another? How does leadership and citizenship work? Um, and 
It's sad and it's scary. And I suppose my takeaway is that I hope we learn something from the fact that, as you mentioned, we were tearing each other apart on October 6th and all the months before that. That was hard enough. And then we saw external actors notice that and take advantage of that. And the bottom line is that we just can't afford it. We cannot afford to tear each other apart. You know, my takeaway, I think, building on that is there's one giant lesson of humility. There was the humility that we had to learn about our so-called military technological, you know, prowess that could keep us safe and our enemies were terrified of us and we had nothing to worry about, which was a tragic, horrible, maybe the worst miscalculation since 1973 about how our enemies viewed us and what we had put into place and our billion dollar fence and how we were all safe because we built this billion dollar fence and bringing some humility in that direction, how much we may not know about what our enemies are planning or thinking, how what we have put in place may not be the very best plan. And maybe we need to always be critical and think of alternatives and understand that we don't have all the answers. And that to me is also the humility that we needed in our debates with one another. You know, maybe if every side was not 100% convinced that they were absolutely right and they had all the answers and the other side then by definition was completely wrong, maybe the conversation becomes very, very different. And uh, it seems to me that's the lesson of the day. For our leaders primarily, I think the hubris that they have demonstrated in the past and in many ways continue to demonstrate, it's dangerous. It's moved from being something really unseemly and unpleasant, it moved all the way to dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, on a personal level, just to constantly mm -hmm. remind myself that I shouldn't be so certain about what I think I'm certain about and that all the wisdom is not with me. So I think I'm hoping that the lesson of humility that we have had to learn, unfortunately, in terms of our security and how we defend ourselves and protect ourselves and not think that we are the technological military wizards that no one can harm, but in fact, we do not have all the answers in terms of our defense that we also don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers in terms of the political structures and the courts and the type of society we want to build. So what do you think, Sefi? A little humility, we can spread that message around? Humility can be at the top of the chart. Absolutely. I agree with everything you said. Wow, I must be super smart if you believe in everything I said. Oh, see, look what happened to my humility. <laughs> As you and I have spoken many times, Sefi, about this, that humility often needs to be paired with curiosity. It's not enough to just acknowledge that I don't know everything. It also demands that, therefore, I'm going to engage with others and be curious about how they see the world and how they understand themselves and the world around them and societal needs. Humility and curiosity do not necessarily mean that you and I are going to end up agreeing with one another. But the Pasuk in Parshat Mishpatim does not say to us, do not disagree. It says, do not tekalel, do not curse one another. And those are two very, very different things because disagreement can be constructive if we've got humility and curiosity to go along with it. Are you saying you're a believer in constructive disagreement? You know, you should maybe do something professional with that Ah, uh, uh, Tzvi idea. is plugging our- Plugging for Machloket Matters, Plugging everyone. our Pardes Machloket Matters Okay, project. so there you go. You now all have follow-up homework. You can check out Pardes Machloket Matters Project and 
see how we are struggling to bring this type of dialogue into the world, right? Parsha Mishpatim tells us we're going to have conflicts. We're going to get into disagreements about money and property and who belongs to what and who's in control of what. The test is how we manage those conflicts. And the Torah is trying to offer us a path to solving our conflicts that does not require violence or the breakdown of our relationships with one another. So the Torah is offering us something. The question is if we're going to learn from it and take it. So, Sefi, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us pleasure to be here. And on behalf of both of us, we, of course, express our tefillot, our prayers, that peace will happen soon, the hostages will come home healthy and well, and things will look a lot brighter. That's our hope and prayer, and we wish all of you a Shabbat Shalom, and don't forget to listen next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.